Our scripture passage today is from the first letter of Peter, chapter 3, and we're continuing to go through this book, which I've called a travel guide for exiles. For Peter reminds us at the beginning that we are exiles here on this earth, and here through this letter he gives us our advice and our guidance for how we can live as exiles here in this life while we wait for all the glories in our true home to come. Before we begin, let us pause for a moment in prayer. Good and gracious Father, you have given us all that we need for life and for our redemption, given by your gracious hand. And Father, we have been given your Holy Spirit, Lord, to guide us and direct us through life, who has inspired these words of Scripture, that we might learn your ways, that you, we might learn your will for us. But Father, we can understand none of these words unless that same Spirit would inspire us today and continue to inspire us, Lord. So we pray you would pour it into our hearts and into our minds that as we read, that as we hear, that we may understand, that we may know your will, and then we may have the courage to go out and do all that you have commanded us. So Father, bless this holy reading of your holy word, and may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I've spent um, almost all of my life as, as a Presbyterian. And there was one period for a few years there where I uh, joined a non-denominational church. And it was a, a church of Reformed theology, but it was uh, charismatic in its modes of worship. So a little bit same, a lot different. And one of the, the great things about when you go to another denomination is you get a chance to have a, a look from the outside in at the denomination that you were a part of. And you get to kind of look at it from some new eyes. And one of the things you see are some things that you missed about the denomination you left. And when I was with this non-denominational church, I was able to look back on my Presbyterian life. And, and there were some things I really missed about it and I, and I gained a new appreciation for like the way our Presbyterian style of government and the, and the way we run our churches, um, some of the, the rituals and the liturgy and tradition we have. We have a lot, but not too much, just the right amount. But also with the perspective from the outside looking in, you can see some things that, well, the Presbyterians don't do so great. And probably the top of the things that Presbyterians aren't that great at is evangelism. The Presbyterians are not known for being good evangelists. In fact, we're pretty notorious for being some of the worst evangelists in all the Christian, uh, the, the Christian world. We're really not good at it. And, there, and, and there's a lot of reasons why we might not be good at it, but I, I think a lot of us get uncomfortable. It, it's very intimate talking about uh, other people, talking about faith to other people, and especially some strangers about talking about our faith. Sometimes we have trouble talking about our faith to people we know and people we love, but then to talk about it to complete strangers, it just makes us, ah, ah, no, no, nah, that's not my thing. I think also the problem we might have is how we look at evangelism. The way we look at evangelism mostly is getting people who don't believe one idea to believe this certain idea. 
people who don't believe in Christ, getting them to believe in Christ. And that means getting in this fight of ideas with people and getting all in their business and sometimes getting pushy, almost like a salesman or a Baptist. <laughs> Hopefully that wasn't recorded. I wasn't recording. Or, or telling people that, or this idea that we got to go out and save people, and that sounds kind of arrogant as well. And so we get uncomfortable with it. And, and don't get me wrong, evangelism is about promoting an idea, getting people who don't believe an idea, don't believe in Christ, to believe in Christ, to believe in the idea of Christ. But it might be helpful if we looked at evangelism in a different way. I mean, how would you feel if we said this evangelism was really about giving people hope? And that's what you do when you evangelize and you preach the good news of Jesus Christ, you are spreading hope to the world. You're giving people who have no hope a source of a true and secure hope for their life. So when we evangelize, we're not just evangelizing an idea. We're ambassadors of hope. Yes, we're winning people over to Christ. Yes, we're winning people over to the church, but we're also winning people from despair to hope. And that's a message that Peter uh, promotes very strongly in this passage today. It's what he wants us to remind us, that as people of Jesus Christ, you are ambassadors of his hope unto the world. Now we're looking at this. I'm going to skip around a little bit. I'm going to start not at verse 13, but at verse 15. And in your scripture passage, it's got the, uh, uh, the notations, the number no, verse notations, so you can follow along. And we're going to start with uh, 15, because this is the point that Paul, uh, Peter's really hammering home in this passage. He says, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So he says, always be prepared to make a defense for the hope that's in you. He's making two main points here. The first main point he's making is about evangelism. As you need to always in all things go proclaim this hope that you have in Christ Jesus. Talk about Christ. Evangelize Christ. Preach to people about Christ. And all these things, always be ready to do that in any opportunity you might find to proclaim Christ as King. Do it. That's the first point he makes. The second point he makes is about what we are evangelizing. And we are evangelizing Christ as hope. You're not making a defense of the idea that's in you. You're not making a, a defense of this thing that you believe about Jesus. You're not making defense about a doctrine. He doesn't say, always be prepared to make a defense about the creed that you preach is true. He says, always be ready to make a defense about the hope that you have within you. That's the powerful message that we have been given. For who else? And give us hope like Christ can. And this, is, this is no ordinary hope. but Hope is usually kind of vague and unknown. You're not, you're not sure what you're hoping for. You just hope for something good. Or, or, or it's a hope that, that's really insubstantial. It's always letting you down like, I hope Carolina wins this weekend. Or I just hope their offense shows up. But we're not going to talk about that, okay? We're not going to talk about that. 
He has a very specific hope that he gives us, a very true hope and a hope that will deliver. And look at verse 18, because this is the substance of the hope that he gives us. He says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And this is the hope that he's asking us to make a defense for. This is the very substance of the hope about Christ, the righteous, suffering for the unrighteous. You see, Christ was the righteous one, the only one. He, he was without sin, and uh, Peter calls him a lamb without blemish. The only person that's ever lived a sinful life. The only person that was able to, to get through any amount of years and not have any stain of sin upon him. And he is this righteous one that Paul is talking, that Peter rather is talking about. And it's the righteous dying for the unrighteous. And we are that unrighteous, he talks about, those sinners. And in all that we do, tainted with that sin, with uh, what our, our theology calls total depravity. It's right down to the core of our being, unrighteous. And because we're unrighteous, we need some redemption. But because we're unrighteous, we cannot buy or purchase our own redemption. Because our own right, we are unrighteous, we cannot save ourselves. We have, we have sinned our way into a corner that we don't have the power to get out of. Any sacrifice, any atonement that we would attempt to bring to God is likewise tainted by this unrighteousness of our sin. And so the only one that didn't need to atone for sin, Christ, the righteous one, is the only one that could atone for sin. And so the, in our unrighteous state, the hopeless state that we find ourselves in, the righteous one, Christ, and he is the one that atones for our sins. And it says that we were forgiven so it might bring us to God. Our sin, which had put a distance between us and God, and now through this righteous sacrifice of Jesus Christ, is now that we are brought to God. We're brought near to Him again, the one who made us, the one who gave us life, the only one who can give us eternal life. Brought back again to Him. This is the substance of the hope that we preach to the world. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins can be forgiven because what if Christ has done and this life can be yours, one that doesn't fail or doesn't fail. We've heard it so much, sometimes we've gotten used to it. And the impact doesn't impress us as much as it did when we first heard it, but we can never forget what amazing this hope is. The righteous dying for the unrighteous. And the hope goes even further than this. Look at verse 19. He says, in which he went, and he's talking about he is, is, is Christ, and which he went, he's talking about going to, uh, to the place of the dead. He's dying. And it says, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight persons were brought safely through water. Now there's a, uh, the Apostles' Creed, we say it every Sunday, and there's one part, or actually two, but one part that really sticks with people sometimes, and it's the part when we say, he descended into hell. 
You know the part I'm talking about that after Christ died, it says we, he descended into hell. And I get questions all the time. What, is it, what does this mean? Like Jesus descended into hell. Well, this, this right here is where we get the idea from, where this doctrine comes that Christ descended into hell. Uh, this passage right here in 1 Peter, because it says he went to the place of the dead. Um, looking back at 18, it says he, he was put to death in the flesh, made alive in, in the spirit in which he went, the place of the dead, and proclaimed to the spirits of prison. Um, so when we use the word hell, it's also replaced as Hades. It's not always the place of punishment. It's the place of the dead, where dead all souls went to this place called Hades or hell or Sheol. And so it talks about Christ going there because he did die and was dead for three days. But it even talks about him going to the hell that we know at the place of punishment. Because if you notice, he said he went to prison. He went to the prison or went to preach to the souls of the spirits that were in prison. And you may ask, well, who are these souls he's talking about? Um, specifically, Peter says these spirits that were disobedient in the days of Noah or in the days before Noah. So he could be talking about, some people think it's the, uh, the angels that disobeyed early in Genesis. It's uh, angels who came and took uh, humans for wives that's a really strange part of the Bible, and I can even get into that today. Um, but as also, it, it could be the, the people, the spirits of the people who lived in the time before Noah. And being condemned for what they have done have been put in this prison that we call hell, this place of punishment. And so Christ, in the three days that he had died, had gone down to this place, to this prison, to preach to spirits that were imprisoned into hell. Speak and uh, proclaim his redemption and his good news to those who had no chance to accept Christ because, well, they lived before Christ came into the earth. Now, the big takeaway we get from this is that Jesus has power over hell. Is that our Savior and his power is so great, he even has power over hell. He even has the love and the grace and the mercy to go down to hell. A place that is completely devoid and, and, and distance from God. And Christ even took himself down there to preach a gospel to those who had not heard the gospel. To give a chance of redemption at those who had no chance of redemption. But also we see him moving freely into hell and back out. I heard a story once. Um, it's one of these uh, near-death experiences. You know what I'm talking about? Y'all read those, heard about those people who like have a heart attack and they're, and they're, and they're uh, proclaimed dead, but they have these visions while they're dead. Like sometimes they're moving in a tunnel and there's a light at the end and, and people go to heaven and they see their relatives. And now I'm not saying if these stories are true or not, I don't know. Um, but there was real interesting one I heard of a guy who had a near death experience and he went to hell and you don't hear a lot where the near-death experience, the guy goes to hell, but he did. And he tells a story. He was in a hospital, and he was having a heart attack, and he could feel his life slipping away, and he, and, he, and he felt himself sinking down into the floors of the hospital, down below the basement and down into the earth itself. And he found himself in a place of fear and torment and fire. And so, of course, he was just, he was terrified. Thought, this is it. I've died, and I'm in hell. And he wasn't a religious man, but he had heard enough about religion that there was this guy named Jesus who could save. And here he was in hell, and according to his story, he, he found himself in hell and he called out to Jesus. 
An amazing thing happened as Jesus came and got him. He finds himself in hell. He calls out to Jesus. He feels his hands pull and lift him up out of hell and back into life again. Now, I'm not telling you that story is true, okay? But I am telling you the story makes a, a true point. Is that there's nowhere Jesus can't find you. That his power, his grace, and his mercy is so great that even into hell he can find us and pluck us back out again. That our Savior is stronger than hell itself. That we have a Savior that can find us anywhere. We have a Savior that can save us anywhere. We have a Savior that's willing even to go into hell itself. That we might find redemption. And it's not from the story of a near-death experience. It's what Peter says here, that he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Now, I don't want you to get the wrong point of that story and to think that you can wait to call out to him. Like, man, I'm just going to do what I want to, and then when I'm sinking into hell, I'm just going to call out to Jesus, and everything will be okay. Look, there's going to be a time when it's too late. That's not what I'm telling you to do, all right? Call on him as soon as you can. But the point I'm making to you is that even hell can't touch our hope. The hope that God has given us, the hope we have in Christ, is such a hope that even hell can't touch our hope. And it goes on in verse, verse 22. He gives us a, a tangible symbol of the hope we have in Christ. Verse 21, he says, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Now he says baptism, which corresponds to this. The this he's talking about is the flood. As the flood was waters that came and it cleansed sin from an entire earth, so baptism in the same way is a waters that cleanse us from sin as well. And it's a tangible symbol that Christ has given us. While we, we baptize babies, while we baptize new believers, the symbol of that His grace cleansing sin from us, just like water will cleanse dirt from our bodies. But what the hope we find here is that this redemption, this forgiveness, will give us a good conscience. It says that we might have an appeal to God for a good conscience. And we can have a good conscience because the stain of sin is completely removed so that there is no guilt left in us now. It's not just a stain that when you clean the stain, you still see the little ring around it. It's not been cleaned completely. Because if we only kind of clean partially, or if we were just, just, just forgiven for our sins and we're just going to pretend like it didn't happen, we could still just bear that guilt and shame. But our forgiveness is such a point that we can have a good conscience now. That even our conscience is clear. Because that sin has been taken away as if it never happened. Because it says the Lord will look upon us and He will remember your sins no more. As in He'll forget them. He'll forget our sins. So we, we come to God and, well, what about, I've done this and I've done that and I can't be holy before you and Lord, how can you accept me as a sinner I am? And God's like, I don't know what you're talking about. I have no idea what you're talking about. I, I don't see any sin. I look at your life and all I see is redemption. I look at your soul and all I see is the holiness of my own son Christ Jesus. How can you tell me you have sin? 
And that's why it's, it's more than, that our forgiveness means it's more than the sin has, has been taken off the record. It's been removed completely. So now we can have a good conscience. Even standing before God, we can have a good conscience because it's been forgotten completely. And it goes on at the, at the end. I want you all to look about who it says about Jesus. Who has, at verse 22, gone into heaven. He's at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So here, here's the, the, the completion of this hope and the guarantee of the hope that we have. Because the one that has done this, the righteous for the unrighteous who has cleansed us like waters will wash dirt away from the body, who has given us new life, a good conscience. He is the one that has angels and powers and authorities subjected to him. It's another way of saying he has all power. He has all authority. And he does, yes, have the authority to remove your sins. He does have the authority to remove death from you. He has that authority. To bring you into his eternal home with him. This is not a power that is weak or as frail or as faulty. The promise that Jesus makes to us comes with all the authority and all the power and all the dominion that belongs to him, which is everything. There's nothing that our Savior can't do. This is the hope that he gives us. A hope that is so strong, in fact, there's nothing the world can do to take it away from us. I want to bring you back to that, that, those verses I skipped over at the very beginning of this passage at verse 13. Because this is the way Peter talks, begins talking about this hope. He says, now, who is there to harm you if you were zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Now the suffering that uh, Peter's talking about here is suffering from other people. Namely, authorities and the powers of this world. He's, he's referring back to all those people we talked about at the end of 2 and beginning of chapter 3. The, uh, the power of the governmental authorities, the power of the, 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 the masters who hold life and death power over their servants and slaves, and even the power of our social uh, customs and institutions. He's saying, these you have no fear of. And the suffering he's talking about is not the suffering of daily life, like just you know, getting sick and getting old and having bad luck. He's talking about the suffering that comes from these powers and authorities that rule over us in the world. He's saying if, if you do good, you don't have to worry about them. You shouldn't have to worry about them because if you're doing right and doing good, these powers and authorities in the world are not going to bring you suffering. Well, we're not that naive, right? We're not that naive at all. And Peter's not that naive either because he was a man who suffered very much from the powers and authorities of the world even though he was doing good. If you do good and you follow Christ, there is a good chance that you will suffer. Because if you stand for Christ and you stand for what is good, we are standing in a world that is ruled over by powers and authorities that don't stand for Christ and they don't stand for good and they will quite likely see you as an enemy. So we often have to suffer for what is right. 
And quite often the people of God and the people that are of Christ that are striving to do good will suffer, not for something they've done wrong, but for the very thing that they do right. But see, Peter finds hope even there. He says, if you happen to suffer for righteousness, you will be blessed. That the world, whatever they can do, whatever they throw at you, the worst they can do is get you blessed by God. And that is the fullness of our hope, is that even in our sufferings, that we will find blessing. Even in our sufferings, that we will find peace. Because no matter what the world can do or throw at us or threaten with us, he tells us, do not be afraid. Have no fear of them. And do not be troubled. So this is the hope that Peter is saying you should always be ready to give a defense for. This is the hope you should always be ready to talk about, always ready to proclaim, always ready to preach to other people. You should always be ready to defend this hope that we have been made righteous through Jesus Christ. We should always ready to defend that we have been brought to God through this Jesus Christ. Always ready to defend that we have been made alive in the Spirit. Always ready to defend that we have been cleansed through baptism. Always ready to defend that we have been given a good conscience. Always ready to defend the hope that we have been promised the victory over death. And the one who gives us this hope is the one that has all authority in heaven and earth. That means there's nothing in heaven above. There is nothing in earth below. There's nothing even in hell below the earth. I can take this hope away from you. Nothing can take this hope away from you. And friends, this is a hope that the world is in desperate need of. The world is in desperate need of a hope and a message like this. There are people out there, people you probably live and work and walk around with and ride the bus with and shop with, people who believe that this world just came about by an accident. They believe that life just came about on the earth as an accident. They believe that they're an accident. They, the people who walk around that believe that there is no purpose and there's no reason for their existence. And they believe that after they die, they're just going to disappear, just cease to exist. And they actually believe the whole universe one day is going to cease to exist. It's like someone cutting out the lights. It's all gone. And there's never a trace that we were ever here. And the world is no better or worse for all these thousands of years of human history. The only hope they have is in the few pleasures that they can squeeze out of life. We know how that works out. That's no hope at all. And there's even, even worse than that. There's people who believe in God, that they think that God hates them, that God is angry at them, that God can't wait to judge them, that he's just, he just, he's just picking through all their deeds to find something that's wrong so he can kind of just bring the hammer down on them. There's people that believe that the only, only uh, way that they can come before God is with righteous acts. They believe that they're going to be judged all by their actions and not be judged by the gospel of grace. There's no hope in that. There's no way to live with that, with that cloud of despair over your life. No, we live in a world that needs hope. 
that needs a real hope, not a false hope, not, not empty promises, the kind that, that we get from politicians every two to four years, even though we know they can't deliver them. This is a hope that's made by the one who has all power and all authority. And yes, he can deliver on them. You know, people look at the church today and they call us outdated. They say the church is obsolete. Christianity itself is obsolete. There's, there's really no need for this faith anymore. It's kind of old and superstitious. It's past their time. The world's moved on now. What does the church do for us anymore? Do people not need hope anymore? Has hope become something that is obsolete? Have we moved on to a place in our civilization now, in human development, that we don't need hope anymore? As long as we need hope, we need this message. As long as people need hope, they need the church that's been entrusted with this message. As long as people need hope, they need Christ. So if you're following along in your, in your notebooks, in your passports, this is the advice from Peter today. Be ambassadors of hope. In our time of exile, while we journey here waiting for the fulfillment of the promises of Christ, be ambassadors of Christ. Be ambassadors of hope. And as you do this, never lose sight of why you hope. Never pass up an opportunity to share the hope that is in you. And as we share Christ with the world, never forget, we share a hope that never fails. To God be all the glory forever and ever. Amen.